Welcome to ChemEngCast, the podcast from the Department of Chemical Engineering at Imperial College London. We interview researchers and academics in the department to find out what they're working on and ask them to explain their research in easy to understand terms. I'm Sarah and I'm the Communications Manager for the department. And I'm Ben and I'm a PhD student in the department. And today we're talking to Tanuj, who is a final year PhD student with Claire Adjuman and Benoit Shashua. He's working on mathematical optimization techniques. So I come from uh, India, as you can probably say, say from my accent, and I belong, I, I grew up in this city called Kolkata, which formerly used to be called Calcutta. It's in the eastern part of India, very close to Bangladesh, and it used to be the capital of British India. So it has a lot of historical significance. And one thing I feel like which was a part of me growing up is that how diverse that city was. And that I think has um, imbi- been imbibed with me ever since. Um, and then I moved um, cities around 10 years ago. I went to this small town in South India in a state called Tamil Nadu called Velour, where I did my bachelor's in chemical engineering at a private university called Velour Institute of Technology. And I spent four years of my life there, which is where I grew to love ChemEng more so. And then while I was doing my undergrad, I decided to go for my master's. And also during my undergrad, I was particularly interested in doing mathematical modeling, control, optimization. Like those are also classic undergraduate courses which you have to do as part of chemical engineering. And those really fascinated me and which led me to apply to Imperial. And I came there for my master's and ever since I've been here at Imperial. So you spoke a bit about your love for chemical engineering Mm -hmm. and how that sort of drove you to applied to Imperial. Was there any particular reason you decided to leave India for Imperial? Were you looking elsewhere? So as I mentioned that I liked um, mathematical modeling a lot during my undergrad and also optimization. And when I started looking deeper into things, I found out about Professor Roger Sargent, of course, and the great research center here on process systems engineering. And I still remember one of my undergraduate professors who kind of motivated me to pursue this field. He, he shared a perspective article by Professor Grossman on process systems engineering, which gave me a very nice broad overview of what the field is about. And then obviously I found out Imperial is one of the leading places for this research and I had absolutely no doubts that I wanted to come here. And also I'll be honest with you, uh, I, it was a bit of a gut feeling as well. Yeah. So. It was a combination of both, which led me to come here. I had other, um, I had applied to other places, but Imperial was my top choice. And had you been to the UK before? That was my first time leaving India when I came here to come for my, or to study, do my masters, basically. Yeah, and obviously, I mean, there's massive differences. Uh, yes. Between India and the UK. Um, how did that translate in your own life and also like academically? Do you see a big difference? Um, yes, definitely. Um, I think there are pros and cons to both, both, both sort of parts of the world, you can say. I think um, 
after coming to the UK, one thing which I've definitely learned is, or I had had to adapt to is a bit more of critical thinking in life. So in general, not just related to academics. I've started to question things more and I've started to just, you know, think critically and try and sort of form a solid basis of an opinion, if that makes sense. Uh, one thing that definitely I learned after coming to the UK, obviously there was a bit of culture shock, but I'm very grateful because I had my aunt here who helped me assimilate. And it was a nice um, sort of an easier sort of introduction to life in the UK than probably many others would have faced. So I'm quite fortunate in that sense. And so you did your master's and then you went straight into your PhD, did you? Um, so actually, no, because I took a year gap. And in that year gap, I wanted some industrial experience um, before continuing in academia. I have always loved academia, but I felt that one year of industrial experience did give me a broader perspective about things in chemical engineering in general. And maybe a bit things of a bit outside of how the sort of world works in a sense, outside this little bubble of academia. That sort of worked out quite nicely because I managed to do two internships and th those were very, two very different internships. One, actually both of them were spin-offs of Imperial. So obviously being here at Imperial and forming those connections helped. So one of them was at um, Process Systems Enterprise, which is now being taken over by Siemens, the company which makes GPROMs, which is at the heart of, at the heart of that company is mathematical modeling. So I got a nice industrial exposure of how mathematical modeling works in industry and how it's actually applied in chemical plants and other areas of application. Then the other internship which I did was with a startup which again came out of um, Imperial from Jason Hallett's group. It's called Urja. It was headed by Clementine Shambon, um, who was a PhD student in the department um, when I was doing my master's. And she um, sort of, or her startup works in the field of providing energy as a service to people in rural India, which do not have easy access to electricity or energy. And that was actually a very fun experience because I got to go to an actual village in India, which I hadn't seen in my life because, because I always grew up in a big city. And it's a world away from a city in even though I was in the same country. And it really opened up my eyes to a lot of things. And also the society, the kind of societal impact that they have, it, it made me feel that I'm doing my little bit to contribute towards that. Both of them were really fun experiences and that sort of set me up for my PhD. Could you actually tell us a little bit about your PhD and what your research is actually about? So uh, that's a slightly tricky question. Um, uh, my PhD actually tends to be very abstract and I've had to think long and hard to try and explain it to people of what my PhD is about. So to put it simply, um, as you probably heard in the previous episodes of this podcast about mathematical models, how we can pull some levers and operate under some constraints. So my PhD deals more about solving those very complicated mathematical models and developing solution approaches so that we can solve these models effectively. So a lot of problems that arise in chemical engineering are highly nonlinear in nature. And because of that, um, think of it as, so I would like to use two analogies. So one is think of it as a bowl. So you, the bowl that you have, a, have your breakfast in. So if you put like a tiny piece of ball, it'll roll down to the bottom always. So it essentially has a convex shape. So 
with that what happens you know and you are absolutely sure that you've reached the bottom of the bowl and think of on the other hand think of a skate park it has like multiple slopes and you know depending on where you start you sort of land in some sort of local sort of bottom half of the skateboard but there might be something which is more deeper and which which lies more at the bottom so similarly the analogy in optimization problems is the bowl is basically a convex problem so where there's only one minimum and we are absolutely sure that that is the best possible that we can do under the constraints that we have but unfortunately most problems in chemical engineering are non convex and we have these multiple solutions and what my phd tries to do is it tries to look into these class of methods which are called global optimization methods to try and find the best possible solution or the best possible minimum or the maximum or whatever it can be under the set of constraints that we have to get the best possible performance that we have um so my phd is basically looking into methods to try and solve these kind of problems so you're trying to work out say whether a ball has definitely rolled to the bottom exactly in a in a sense yes in a sense, um, because that would be the minimum point yeah for your problem and it's important to find a minimum point yeah why so one one crucial example that i can think of is if you have some safety consideration when you are trying to de design your process so you want to make sure that the safety consideration is met at all times um or under all scenarios so if we have like these sort of multiple solutions and if we don't find the best possible solution there is a chance that we might be violating that safety consideration um which might lead to some unintended consequences but if we have like a global al algorithm which gives you the best possible solution this safety consideration would be met at all times for example another example that i can think of is this is slightly more involved so for example in chemical engineering we have these thermodynamic models and laws of thermodynamics dictate that your energy should be at the lowest possible state for a material to exhibit its stable nature so it has to like if it is stable in our surroundings or in nature it has to exhibit the lowest possible energy to put it very simply so it this is again an optimization problem which we can solve mathematically to find the minimum possible energy so if we do not use global techniques we might land up in one of those local sort of minimums which might not correspond to the stable state so we might not see that material in practice so it has implications in real life so that's why these kind of global algorithms are very important particularly in chemical engineering i imagine this is actually quite difficult right because so if you're in a say the the landscape is massive yeah and you're in a dip and you yeah. can't see above the dip and yeah. you can't see above the cliffs like you say you're in the grand canyon and it looks yeah. like you're right at the bottom yeah but you don't know if the grand canyon goes deeper yeah exactly in simple terms how can you work out if you are at the deepest point so that's what so the kind of algorithms that i sort of work on so good thing about those algorithms is they are deterministic in nature and what do i mean by that is they'll at least tell us how far we are from the minimum possible so you solve something of you solve another sub problem which is essentially you try and construct a sort of bigger bowl around the whole feasible landscape that we have and you try and solve that problem and that is the best possible that we can do which tells us how far we can we are from the best known solution that we already have so usually 
there's this gap and you want this gap to be as small as possible. So in finite time, if we are not able to close that gap, at least we know how far we are possibly from the best possible solution. So at least we have some sort of an idea and we are not completely in the dark. So that's a very something which is very powerful about these classes of algorithms that I work with. And so you're working predominantly on designing the algorithms, whereas previously in podcasts, you have people that use these sort of techniques, but they're applying it to quite specific things. So um, I try and focus mostly on try and find more efficient ways of, you know, leverage, leverage these algorithms. But I try also because at my heart, I'm an engineer after all. So I try and look at an engineering problem, which um, a lot of people in my group work on. And those are also very difficult to solve to global optimality, or as I call it, or find the best possible solution. And I've been putting a lot of effort during the course of my PhD to try and make these problems more amenable to be solved more effectively and to try and get the best possible solution. So the class of problems that I try and sort of applying my methods on is something called computer-aided molecular design, um, broadly speaking. And that involves kind of like playing Lego, but with atoms and molecules, which sounds a lot of fun in my opinion. And these, essentially, it's kind of like, if you think of it, you know what you want from your material or your product or whatever. And you try and find that material which meets those targets. So that, that is what this problem is all about. And what you do is you have these models which essentially link the structure of a molecule, so how they are arranged and how they are combined, to its property. So basically, since we can link the property um, and the structure, we know what properties we are interested in and what values we want. We can find the optimal structure using these mathematical models to, which helps us design the materials or the processes or you know, the kinds of materials that go into processes or different products, which work really well. So that's sort of, broadly speaking, these kind of sort of models help us um, like solve these kind of design problems. And they're very difficult to solve, not to mention. I mean, it sounds really futuristic, like science fiction, <laughs> doesn't it? Like we're using computers to design molecules, which yeah. I guess these molecules then could be made in real life. Yes, exactly. So this is to help guide the experimental effort because if you think of it, there are millions of possibilities. Obviously, we have some knowledge built up over the years, so we know what kind of molecules work. But this sort of knowledge might not be enough. We might be missing out on some promising molecules that we don't know about. So if we have these kind of models, we can help explore or discover these kind of promising molecules which have not which we don't know about so far, and we can then te test experimentally and see if they actually perform well. So, so the models help to reduce experimental effort, the resources that go in, the time. So it's actually very beneficial to all, like not just to like in, in, in an economic sense and in the sense of time, but also to the environment because we use up less resources. So, so I think for a lot of people that might listen to this, it's quite hard to picture like what someone that designs algorithms mm -hmm. does day to day. I think when you're a scientist and you're going into the lab and doing experiments, it's fairly obvious what you might be doing. But can you talk a bit about what your day to day research looks like sort of as a mathematician? My day to day research essentially 
I try and start my day by um, making a cup of coffee. <laughs> then I try and read some of the latest happenings in my field to try and catch up. And then what I try and do is I try and think about some ways or how I can sort of tailor these mathematical models so that the solvers that are already being developed and they are quite good, um, how I can sort of maximize the solvers that are already built, like their potential and sort of tailor the mathematical formulation. So for example, one part of my PhD dealt with some sort of ref reformulations of the model. So you essentially have a model which a modeler has developed, but that might not be the best from a solver's perspective. So what you try and do is you try and transform the model so that it's essentially the same mathematical model. It will give you the same solution, but it's just some sort of a transformation so that when the solver sees the model, it's easier for the solver to try and get the solution to the user. So I think about those things a lot. So it involves a lot of thinking clearly. And then I try and implement those in different sort of packages such as Python and there are sort of optimization modeling languages that are around, they're called GAMS and there are a few more um, which uh, I use a lot. And then, as I said, uh, I, I work a lot on computer-aided molecular design, which my colleagues in the group have already developed those models. So I sort of take the models from them and try and see how I can solve them more effectively and then go back to them. So we kind of complement each other in the group. So your research is obviously quite broad. It can be applied to a lot of different things. Yeah. So when we normally ask why is this research important, well, the answer is basically it's important for anything that uses these sort of techniques, right? Yeah. But what are your hopes for this sort of, your field of research looking forward, do you think, in 5, 10, 20 years' time? Mm-hmm. So that's a very good question. And what I feel is that the kind of models that we are developing and at the pace that we are developing them, they're becoming more and more complicated. We want to sort of model more and more integrated things at multi-scales and over a large sort of breadth of scales as well. So it can be from going from atoms to sort of all the way to supply chains. So you, you see the kind of mathematical power that we would need and there's a lot of progress in the hardware as well. But I don't think that's sufficient. We need to do a lot more to push the boundaries of the kind of models that we can solve. And there's a long way to go in terms of that. And what I personally feel is that these days, there's a lot of um, developments in the field of machine learning. So what uh, I feel is machine learning and optimization are two very intertwined um, fields and they both need each other and I don't think we've been doing enough of that and what I feel is that machine learning would have a big role to play in optimization and also optimization would have a big role to play in machine learning and that will be the way forward going five to ten years so you try and make those decisions on the fly so you just have your data you train your machine learning model and just, just optimize over that model you do it in an end-to-end -end way um, and sort of you have decisions on the fly, which helps you sort of decide, okay, this is the best possible option that I have under the given constraints that I need to operate in. So that is where I see the field being headed a lot. The sort of progress 
that you talk about that you know you've even just seen over the course of your PhD how would this affect just the normal person on the street day to day um, because we, we're using these algorithms sort of all the time without realizing it so so the thing is what I feel is in a sense we as humans we always try and do better like if we have something we accumulate some experience and that experience teaches us okay um, this is where I can cut down on time this is where I can cut down on my effort whatever and if you think of it we we solve these kind of optimization problems every day without even realizing it and in terms of um, sort of how it would impact the day-to-day you think of um, your supply chains, for example. These are very difficult problems to solve, which have been alluded to in the past episode again. And if you have these elements of machine learning, and if you can make a decision on the fly, you can get your delivery in a more sustainable manner and probably quicker as well without even realizing it. Or there might be other bespoke solutions which we haven't discovered, um, which can be in terms of, let's say, once I created a fantasy Premier League team using an optimization model. So in, in, in that sense, like, you know, people can just think. And once I feel like if the field advances enough, this would become more commonplace and people would think about, you know, try and make these decisions more smartly and not just simply using their brains. But because we have we can use our brains to try and help us to make even smarter decisions. And that's where I see people in everyday life um, once it becomes mainstream, which is my sincere hope at, in the future. Like. So you've spoken about a lot of the potential benefits for this research and where you see it going, but what do you think are the biggest challenges for the field at the moment? So the biggest challenges, which um, I think I briefly mentioned, that the kind of models that we are developing, um, they are probably not solvable. Um, and we need to use a lot of bag of tricks, as we call them, um, colloquially and a lot of other things to try and make them solvable so one thing which I definitely see which probably won't happen and I think it's been proved by a few scientists as well that you cannot build a general purpose solver which works well for all kinds of problems that we have around us so what we essentially need to do is we need to tailor the solution techniques to the problem that we have at hand so that's, I feel, is one of the biggest challenges because we have so many different areas of expertise and it's a bit difficult to try, unless you have that domain knowledge, to try and build something which is specific to... So how you tie this all together is, I think, one big challenge that a field faces. Like, okay, we know that we cannot have a general purpose solver, but how can we make it as general as possible? So. That's, that's like, I think, one of the biggest uh, challenges in the field. You do a lot of this work anyway with outreach for children and stuff, but what do you think is the most effective way that you can communicate your research for something that is ultimately quite abstract? Puzzles and sort of these sort of problem-solving um, methods of, you know, engaging with children. So if you think of it, let's take Sudoku, for example. That's also an optimization problem. How do you try and find all the numbers that fit in those squares? Um, and for example, if you ask me, you can teach optimization to kids by trying to get them engaged in Sudoku, for example, which a lot of kids probably do try their shot at. I would say 
again, the fantasy Premier League example which I took. Um, imagine you had a tool which sort of automatically guides you which players to pick in because they all have the costs and you have to you are, you operate under a set of constraints and it's quite popular with a lot of people um so something like that you know which sort of strikes a chord with them but also has that relation to or the link to the kind of work that i do so even though it's abstract because it has so, such widespread applications it's probably not as difficult to find things where you can take it as a teaching medium and try and communicate it to people who are not as well versed in this sort of field so you're coming to the end of your phd hmm. could you talk a bit about what the next steps are for you personally academically so i love academia in general um and i want to stay in academia so to continue sort of my academic training i'm going for a postdoctoral research position at u delft in november basically and as i said like the way i see the field evolving is there would be a lot of interaction with machine learning and ai and that postdoc focuses more on um techniques of ai and machine learning applied to a class of chemical engineering problems so i feel that it'll complete or it'll be a next natural step in my training during my phd i got a lot of expertise in optimization and now i would like to gain that expertise in the field of ai and hopefully what i want to try and do in future is take these two individual things and try and find more common ground and more sort of areas of application where i can sort of leverage these two very powerful tools that we have developed and transcend problems which face us human kind thank you so much to me this been uh, really good thank you so much for the chance to have a chat with you i really enjoyed it as well yeah.